Hey, thanks for dropping by for some Smoke and Science, the podcast dedicated to nerding out with two PhD scientists who research cannabis and who also use it. We were blown away by the positive response from our first episode on the challenges of cannabis research. Yeah, we want to share our first ever review from Telfer C. Quote, if you are intrigued by the unfolding discoveries of the primal endocannabinoid system and demand and enjoy fun and rigor from your science Sherpas, this podcast is the place to be. These two PhDs are the real deal, excited to share and actively admit when they know and when they don't know. It's a fresh and energizing listen. Wow, thank you so much, Telfer. Also shout out to Tabs24, Gerson, Surgeoneer, and C5X2C for reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It actually helps us a ton and we super appreciate it. And thanks to everyone who reached out to us with questions and suggestions for this episode on our Instagram at Smoke and All. We're so excited to be on this journey together and love hearing what you all are interested in. We're going to include you as much as possible because that's what this podcast is all about, bridging the gap between research scientists and everyone else. In this episode, we dive into pain. We discuss what it is, the different kinds of pain, and how cannabis can help diminish the feeling of pain. We're also going to hear from Allison Moore, president of the Hereditary Neuropathy Foundation, about using cannabis for patients who have rare disorders with no other treatments. Then we'll discuss why some people are more susceptible to pain, and by the end of this episode, you'll have an overview of how cannabis can help reduce pain signaling at the molecular level. All right, let's do it. Welcome to Smoke and Science. Nothing but the facts about our favorite plant. Welcome, everyone, to the second episode of Smoke and Science. This episode is going to be all about cannabis and pain. And I think one of the most interesting things about pain is that every human experiences pain, but every human experiences pain differently. We all experience pain through our brain's perception of it, and we're going to be talking a lot about how cannabis alters that process. Oh, yeah. It's such a subjective experience for everyone, and that's been a challenge just clinically um, defining pain and how much pain you have because everyone experiences it differently. And I actually had to look it up when we were when we were like scripting out what we were going to talk about and what the major topics were. I had to ask myself, like, what actually is pain? Because there's I have the answer in my head that is from experience where I'm like, pain is pain. It hurts. And then I have the answer in my head um, that's molecular, which is that pain is a reaction to signaling. And um, the reality is that it's both, right? But I looked it up and the, the definition is that pain is an unpleasant experience or a sensation in the body and mind. Yeah, and I think oftentimes we associate pain as this terrible thing that we don't want to experience, especially if you have chronic pain. But pain is very useful in your body too um, sometimes. If you didn't experience pain, that would be a really challenging thing to go about with your life because if you – if you put your hand on a hot stove, you need that pain response to tell your brain, yo, your hand's on a hot stove, remove that hand so you won't get hurt. It is so important evolutionarily to 
us being alive and being able to survive totally it's funny you mentioned the hot stove thing because i have a problem with that actually my body doesn't sense heat correctly and so i've never gotten a first degree burn in my entire life because my body doesn't sense heat until i'm like in the second degree so i i always feel a second degree burn and there's and my theory that i've come up with is that it has to do with feeling pain and for some reason the receptors in my skin or my skin's ability to feel that super hot heat um, it doesn't fire properly and so it doesn't send that pain to my brain and so my brain doesn't know to remove my hand from the hot stove and i think that it it is so important it's it's such an important process it's it's ancient and it's one of the most primary things that has kept us alive and it, just a cool side note, um, I had a friend growing up who put their hand on a hot stove and actually like burned that skin so bad that he had to get a skin graft from his leg. And then he had to shave his hand for like the next 20 years because it just kept growing leg hair. What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's wild. That is so incredibly interesting. Also, I wonder about his hand because hair follicles have different properties like the skin that has hair follicles on it have different properties yeah so at the base of every hair follicle is a little bundle of stem cells that help regulate the overall health of the skin and the cb1 receptors on these stem cells have been shown to help keep them alive and regulate the overall immune system response on your skin it's it's incredibly interesting i should uh, reconnect with him and see how he's doing you should be like hey have you heard this have you heard this podcast because you're mentioned we we talk about your hand (laughs) we talk about your hand and needing to shave it uh Uh, yeah i mean but that was a great example of what nociceptive pain is right you have these special little nerve endings all over your body that are meant to detect painful stimuli so things that cause pain and then you have a specific way of sending that signal to your brain to tell your brain that you're in pain and just for reference if you're curious these specialized nerve endings they're called nociceptors and that's the reason that this type of pain is called nociceptive pain yeah and nociceptive is the fancy word in my mind for body pain Nociceptive pain is pain that comes from a stimulus outside of your body, like heat or like a chemical. Like most nociceptive pain, I I associate it with burning in my my head just because of the heat and the chemical burn association. But it could also be like extreme cold, which also kind of feels like burning. So maybe that's why. Yeah, very painful. I think about it as as burning. But if you have like a sore tooth or if you're pulling your hair, right, those types of pains come from um, sensory inputs, which is what body pain or nociceptive pain is. Your body has all of these nerve cells and it relays that information to the brain. And the responsibility of these nerve cells is to say, hey, there's either like a physical stimulus, which would be like a bruise, right? There's either like a physical thing that has has hurt you to cause pain, um, or there's a heat or chemical component. These nerve endings then sense these components and then send that pain signal. And we call that body pain, nociceptive pain, because it's very different from the other type of pain, which just purely comes from the brain, which I call brain pain, body pain versus brain pain, which is neuropathic pain. 
And you, neuropathic pain is much less understood than uh, than the body pain. I mean, we understand components of it. We know that it affects a lot of people, but there are many different things that can cause neuropathic pain. Whereas we know in body pain, it's it's those nerve endings that are causing that. Um, but with neuropathic pain, you're still getting that pain signal sent to your brain, but it's kind of being created in your brain. It's not being created from these specialized nerve cells on the outside of your body. And because we can't see the inside of the, you know, the, the circuitry of what causes pain, right? The, the pain signal has to go from the nerve endings into the, the peripheral nerve endings in your body. The periphery is just the outside of the body. It has, the signal has to go from there through your spinal cord to your brain. Um, but there's, there's plenty of places where if you have brain pain or neuropathic pain, there's many different places along that circuit that the pain could be originating from. And it, it's really difficult and unclear how to, how to piece that apart. And a lot, which brings us to another topic, which is that a lot of neuropathic pain is chronic. The other two types, the other ways to, the other ways to separate pain is to separate pain between acute pain and chronic pain. And most neuropathic pain is chronic. It's something that continues over long periods of time. It might increase or decrease, but it is more or less constant. And, and neuropathic pain can be caused from something as simple as a pinched nerve, which is, you know, really hard to find. And it can cause pain for months or years. Um, chronic pain is incredibly debilitating to people. And again, like acute pain has a purpose. If you are leaning on a hot stove that has a purpose, you need to take your hand off of that stove. But eventually the neuropathic pain and the chronic pain, um, it sometimes doesn't have a purpose anymore. Your body's just creating these signals. It's kind of unregulated and it, it no longer is purposely telling your brain that we're in pain, we need to change something. Instead, it's just continuous pain signals being sent to your brain. Right. And acute pain can turn into chronic pain. And this is kind of where we're going to discuss how cannabis can affect both. And I think it's interesting because for both types, acute and chronic pain, cannabis has historically been used for, for both types of this pain for thousands and thousands of years. Um, it is worth mentioning that medically, un under current medical um, guidelines, cannabis is still debatable as a pain management uh, prescription. But in my opinion, there is overwhelming evidence just in the history of the use of cannabis and in people's experiences that cannabis does have a therapeutic application. It, it is able to reduce different types of pain. And there is a very real molecular mechanism for why cannabis works for pain. And that's what we're going to discuss in the rest of this episode. Right. And I, I think part of the hesitation towards um, physicians, you know, saying that cannabis works for pain might be just a hesitation with cannabis to begin with. We know that these mechanisms exist. We know that cannabis does affect the pain pathway. Um, but some people are still uncomfortable with the fact um, that cannabis has such a huge therapeutic value um and that's that's a different episode we can talk about that <laughs> that's a whole different conversation of why that occurs 
Uh, actually, just this, like recently, within this last month or two, there has been a formal recommendation that has come out that shows that cannabis can be uh, prescribed for chronic pain. And they evaluated cannabis over standard treatment options for chronic pain, which standard treatment options are usually anti-inflammatories like Advil, ibuprofen, Aleve, which is naproxen, or like diclofenac, which is just types of anti-inflammatories that are called non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Then there are the um, steroid pain medications like cortisol, and then there are the opioids. And the opioids cause huge problems for a number of reasons, but they're very effective for pain. But cannabis has been recently given, it was given a week a week recommendation, which I don't understand why they came to week, because I, it was it was shown to be better. Why it was shown in the paper to be to be better or comparable to standard care. Yeah, and, and I mean, just reiterating this thing about opiates too. Um, if you have chronic pain, your your pain is not going to stop because of the opiates. It's just going to help with the symptoms of that pain. And if you are constantly taking opiates because of that pain, it can lead to extremely addictive tendencies and can be extremely harmful. Interesting little side note, there's actually multiple opioid receptors in the brain. There's the mu opioid receptor, the kappa, and the delta. Morphine and codeine and these traditional analgesics all bind to the mu opioid receptor. However, these other opioid receptors are an emerging target for a less addictive pain management strategy. Your body also gets used to anything that it takes chronically with tolerance. And that's a piece of this of this problem is not having other options because even in the case of opioids being extremely useful, it would be really beneficial to be able to use them and then to be able to wean off of them, use them less, uh, even just even just as a reduction of harm. I think it's incredibly beneficial, but it, it has been, cannabis has been given a weak recommendation for chronic pain somewhat recently. And um, the paper I think is interesting. We'll link it in, in the bio. The paper actually found that cannabis performed better in a number of indications that that they tested and that there were minimal negative side effects and as compared to standard treatment uh, standard treatment has negative side effects as well i was prescribed high doses of ibuprofen for a long long time and my stomach had a, a lot of issues i had a lot of gi issues that came from taking just huge doses of ibuprofen and also my body got used to the ibuprofen so it didn't actually really work that well anymore yeah. and for cannabis and pain, um, it's an it's definitely an option that I think for people who have chronic pain is worth exploring. And we'll talk about it later, but there's also many different ways you can use cannabis for chronic pain, like different methods of administration. Um, and, and that can help a lot with, I mean, not just tolerance, but also different kinds of pain allow you to tolerate certain medications differently if you have if you're not good at swallowing pills or it's painful for you to swallow pills there are alternative ways to take cannabis compared to some other medications where there's not and there's complementary ways of of mixing these methods of application or administration you can get the types of benefit that you're looking for when you understand that there are these you know these other ways of 
of doing it because there are different ways of activating the system in the brain and body that interacts with cannabis that causes these effects. So we ended up talking for far too long about cannabis and pain and ended up splitting this episode into two parts. And the methods of application segment actually ended up in part two. So it's on its way soon, but it won't be in this episode. Um, that system is called the endocannabinoid system, and we're about to go pretty deep into that right now um, and how it is involved with pain circuitry. And so if you give this a listen and you are still a little bit confused, um, you can check out our YouTube. We upload all of these podcasts on YouTube, and they have. there's going to be some figures that we will um, supplement with what we're talking about. But we're going to describe them as best we can now. And what we're talking about is how cannabis and the active molecules in cannabis activate the endocannabinoid system and what happens chemically to these nerve cells that sense pain to reduce that pain signaling in the nerve cells and in the brain. And there's there's multiple ways in which it does this, but we're going to start with just the main part of how does the endocannabinoid system work. Yeah, and just reiterating on that point, although this um, does seem confusing because it is pretty complex, um, the concepts we're about to discuss essentially contribute to all the therapeutic benefits of cannabis. So if, if you have to listen to it twice, if you have to do some Googling on your own, this is so important to understand on how cannabis interacts with your body. And it's quite incredible um, once all the pieces come together. So we're excited to talk about it. <laughs> I think I think that maybe we'll start with just the fact that brain cells talk to each other. I think that that's that's something people have heard of circuits, right? Nerve brain circuits, nerve circuits, pain pain circuitry. Um, that circuit that we're talking about is multiple brain cells linked up together, sending signals from one to the other to the other. They send these signals to each other electrically. It's an electrical impulse. We call it an action potential. And this is how our brain cells talk to one another. It's how everything in the brain is is executed. Absolutely. And, and that impulse isn't possible unless it's kind of activated. So there are receptors. Receptors take signals from around. Your receptors are everywhere in your body, including your brain cells. And essentially, um, small compounds can bind to those receptors, and then eventually it can cause that activation of that brain cell. So the receptors are super important, and the activation is super important. But also the direction that um, the signals are sent is very important. So the receptors, I like to think about it as like a very complicated, um, like an airplane dashboard where there's all sorts of buttons and switches every button or switch would be like a type of receptor they're all they're all different and they serve different purposes and most cells pretty all well all cells have more than one type of receptor but most brain cells actually have more than one type of system receptor so if you've heard of the serotonin system or if you've heard of the dopamine system the gaba system the opioid system and now the endocannabinoid system you know these are not isolated on like it, it's not like one brain cell has endocannabinoid system receptors and one brain cell has serotonin receptors or one brain cell has dopamine receptors they're actually mixed in the sense that brain cells usually have at least more than one type of receptor that they're interacting with. 
and right and there there's many different all together but they're not all activated by the same thing so they're very specific with which 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 compounds can actually bind to that receptor and cause a response so the the serotonin and the dopamine systems aren't going to be able to activate all the receptors only the ones specific to them all right that was an aggressive amount of information so let's do a quick recap on what we've discussed so far So we can divide pain into two broad categories, body pain and brain pain. Another word for body pain is nociceptive pain because that pain signal originates from these specialized nerve endings all over your body called nociceptors. These nociceptors respond to things like cuts and tears in your skin, excessive heat or cold, and even chemicals. Now, brain pain is very different. This can also be called neuropathic pain because it originates from those neurons. Now, we can either experience these short spurts of pain, which we call acute pain, and that would be from something like a cut, but we can also experience long-term pain, and this long-term pain is called chronic pain, which can last months or even years. So some ways to describe the types of pain we're experiencing are things like chronic neuropathic pain or acute nociceptive pain. But now it's time for a quick break. Then after that, we'll have an interview from another team member here at Smokinol who's going to talk to an expert about some practical applications of all of the science we're talking about. Then stay tuned after that because we will continue taking a deeper dive into the molecular mechanisms of pain. Most people prefer the effects of smoking over edibles. The most important reason why is heat transformation of cannabinoids, the active ingredients in cannabis. Unlike conventional edibles, edibles made with smokinol contain heat-transformed cannabinoids from smoke. Edibles made with smokinol feel more like smoking. If you are a product manufacturer, contact us today. Smokinol, we smoked it for you. Hey, I'm Andy, by the way. I'm the co-inventor of Smokinol and uh, vice president and co-founder of Real Isolates LLC. We're a cannabis research company. Um, this, this team, our whole team, is actually a patients-first company. Uh, just like my, my teammates, Miyabi and Riley, I am a patient-first. Um, September is actually CMT and HMPP Awareness Month. And this is a population of people that do not have treatment options at all, and cannabis can be a huge help. I'm actually going to interview in this segment Allison Moore, the CEO and founder of the Hereditary Neuropathy Foundation. So let's get to know Allison and the work of the foundation and specifically what they're doing studying cannabis for pain. Thanks. So uh, my name is Allison Moore, as you said. Um, I founded HNF back in 2001. Um, I had no idea that I had the CMT gene, just like you had no idea that you had the HNPP gene until a little later in life, like me. And um, I knew that when this happened to me and I ended up getting severe onset of CMT, I decided that it was really important that I do something to help the community as well as get super involved in research and searching for treatments and cures. And here we are 20 years later, and I don't think there's ever been a more exciting time for our disorder. CMT is a progressive neurological disease. 
And if you, the reason I called HNF, the Hereditary Neuropathy Foundation, is it's an umbrella of a lot of different diseases. So Charcot-Marie Tooth, which is also known as CMT, CMT1A is the most common form of the disease, and it's the PMP22 gene. So I, it's, I love talking to somebody who has the same gene as me, but yours is a deletion and mine's a duplication. See, I always forget that, actually. So yeah. I'm glad you reminded me. And, you know, what's really exciting is we're doing now not only research in just CMT1A, we're doing it for a lot of different types of CMT, including HNPP. You know, we always say this is the, the biggest disease no one's ever heard of. And really, we, to date, we don't have a superstar either musician or actor, anybody famous that has come forth to share their disease. But yesterday the news came out that Alan Jackson, and I, I don't even think I would be saying this, but I'm looking at your beautiful guitar <laughs> in the background. And, you know, Alan is this superstar country singer. He's 62 years old and He's so brave. He decided to come out about this whole thing yesterday on the Today Show. And I happened to be watching it. So That's really incredible. exciting. Did we're getting a lot of press. Did you have any idea that they were going to, you know, announce this before? Or were you just... just I had no idea. Yeah. I was actually with my mother and we were both floored. And I, I love the CMT, country music and CMT, you know. So yeah. it was like a nice little connection there. But, you know, I feel his pain and yeah. suffering because you get to a point as we all know you know sometimes you can hide it but over time as it progresses it does become a very visible disorder and it's super devastating to live with it can be so debilitating where you lose the normal use of your legs your hands for example i have bilateral foot drop i need to wear leg braces to walk without them i can't walk really at all yeah. So, you know, but you live the best life you can. And when I met you at that summit, it was a pain summit. And we were the ones that really brought pain to the forefront for HNPP, CMT, and other types of inherited neuropathies. It wasn't on the radar. You know, it was believed that, you know, CMT really wasn't that painful of a disease. And it's, they never really thought that neuropathic pain was as prominent. In clinical trials, nobody was addressing it. So with a lot of the research that we did, we we discovered that it was really important that we shed light on this. And I think that's why we're here today is you've done a lot of work in the area of um, medicinal cannabis use and CBD and yeah. so forth. S- symptom management, right? Because that's, that's really yeah. what it comes down to. I just want to say first of all before i even dive into anything here uh going to that summit the patient-centered summit at mit was like an actual turning point in my life which is i mean that wholeheartedly it uh changed the course of what i wanted to do in my career and what i cared about because you know first and foremost knowing that this is a hereditary thing and i have had it my whole life and i had weird symptoms growing up and i was an athlete and things that affected me as an athlete and I'd go to the doctor and they didn't know what was going on. They actually called me nummy for years in there because it was kind of oh, like, that's horrible. Like a funny thing. It's like, oh, we call you nummy around here because like no one could tell why I was numb or losing sensations and, and all this stuff. And when I you know, was diagnosed in 2015, I was 25 and I was in a career I didn't really love, you know, 
cool company and stuff, but you know, I couldn't feel my hands one day and I've experienced that many times and it would come back, right? So it comes and goes and you get pains and different things. And, and, uh, you know, I finally, it was a bad one. It was a bad episode. Couldn't feel my hands for an extended period. They lost function. I couldn't type, I couldn't do my job. So got the diagnosis officially. And it wasn't until, uh, cause there wasn't a lot of information until I found you guys, you know, I, my now wife, my girlfriend at the time found that summit and said, Hey, I'm signing up your whole family. We're all going to go. So I have to give her credit for finding you guys, but we went and I was blown away by the approach you took with the patients, the patient centered summit, because one of the doctors, I don't remember his name, a neurologist there at the table on one of the breakout sessions was asking me a lot of questions. And, uh, I said, Hey, I came here for information. Like this is it's scary that I don't know what's going on. You know, I'm here for information. And they said, well, Hey, you're the expert, you have it. And that moment kind of like was a major turning point for me. Cause I said, wow, you know, we don't know everything. A lot of, I think a lot of people expect that you can just go visit a doctor and you're going to, you know, walk away with a prescription or something and you're going to be okay. And in that moment I was like, wow, this is uh, you know, it was scary, but also almost exciting to think like, wow, could I like potentially help make a difference in this community by finding out things about myself, you know, taking notes about how certain things may help me with my pain or with, you know, different, different things, right? Like playing guitar is very difficult when you can't feel your fingers. It's a, it's a perspective thing for me. When I learned about what's going on here and why I was feeling weird, I also learned during my neurological testing that I have a really high tolerance for pain. And it's probably because I've been feeling it all the time and it, I'm just used to it. Right. Uh, so, you know, I, I do self-medicate with cannabis and CBD and hemp products and I have for years. And that was a major bone of contention between me and my family. And it was illegal and it was scary and it was bad, but it was helping me. And I liked it so much because it was helping me. And I didn't know that it was helping me in the ways that it was until, you know, years later and diving into what we do at Real Isolates now and, and all the knowledge I've taken from my partner, Miyabi, and the people I've met in this industry, and how they really do care about people that don't have options um, or don't have treatments or cures yet. And So we are starting to do high throughput screens for already FDA approved drugs. And, you know, I think of cannabis often because there was a drug recently approved, I believe, for epilepsy, where it was a combination where cannabis was in the formula. And yeah. You know, we work with a French biopharmaceutical company called Farnax, and their whole platform is called Pleotherapy, where it's taking drugs and synergistically, the drugs combined really are targeting many parts of what we're dealing with as patients. So I believe in what you guys are doing. And I will also say that because of the MIT, when we did the meeting at MIT, yeah. We did a lot of surveying, patient-reported outcome surveys, and we did it through our patient registry, GRINT, Global Registry for Inherited Neuropathies. And we found a, an amazing um, PhD by the name of Dr. Brian Piper mm -hmm. in uh, Pennsylvania, who his career has been very focused on this. And then with your group, we expanded on this and we started to get a real feel for cannabis use and also we know it's illegal not so much anymore which is yeah, great yeah. news for all of us that enjoy um, using this for pain 
Um, Unfortunately, but, not everybody with CMT or HMPP does live in a legal state yet. So it's right. still, you know, even talking about this, I feel bad. I, I have sympathy for those people because I know it's scary to do something that you're, you're breaking the law, but you're just trying to improve your quality of life. And Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that um, what, what we started learning, like those thoughts that people had and you know, if you're a younger person, especially, and you, your parents don't use it or they don't believe in it. And, you know, if you remember at that MIT conference, I, I remember, uh, I know the you're position, we're not going to say his name because yeah. I'm very fond of him, but, you know, he was just adamant, like, yeah. this is so wrong. And the American Academy of Neurology isn't approving this until they endorse this. You'll never, you know, hear from us. But then there are doctors out there like Dr. Greg Carter, who was well ahead of his time yeah. before I even started HNF. I think he was doing a lot of work with this. So, you know, it's to me, it's a very safe way to deal with the pain if you know where to get it, if you get a prescription for it. I learned in our patient surveys and the study that we did that it really helps people with sleep. And I just want to mention that the study got accepted and it's being published. That's incredible. So we'll be really happy once it's officially published, we'll be able to share that. So this is actually going to be my first scientific publication, and I'm really, really excited about it. I never thought I'd be contributing to cannabis research of any kind or specifically cannabis research in regards to my patient population, CMT and HMPP. Uh, once this is published, we're definitely going to be sharing it. So follow along on social media and you will be the first to know. Um, this study itself was actually done with a huge emphasis on patient experiences, which is really, really important and something that this industry doesn't seem to often consider. Um, we're going to be picking back that conversation now. Unfortunately, but maybe the tide's turning here, the cannabis industry at large is primarily all about THC. THC pays the bills, people say. And I think that's that's starting to change a little bit, but, you know, Understanding that a lot of the medical patients, which is a lot of people that are registered medical patients, they're not just looking for, you know, the highest milligram THC chocolate bar that you can buy, which is the funny thing. When you have the medical card, you can get those higher doses, but you don't necessarily need that. You need some improvement. You need sleep. You need pain management. And you need to be able to do your job during the day or take care of your kids or drive. Drive a car. Yeah. You know, that's, that's the big thing. I have a friend that she's always, she dabbles and dabbles because she's from Seattle. So she can get anything. She's like, Allison, try this. Cause she's always worried about me not getting enough sleep. Yeah. And seriously, sometimes I, I get completely whacked and uh, it's really, really challenging. Um, it's just a whole, you know, it's a whole thing. I don't want to go down like negative street here. Cause this is about awareness, but I think it's important for whoever is listening. If they do listen that, you know, there's a lot of people that fall under this umbrella that are struggling every day to just have a normal, regular, everyday quality of life. And there's people out there like you guys that are trying to make a difference and trying to find solutions. And, you know, people like us are trying to find solutions specifically with cannabis that aren't going to, you know, totally ruin your day potentially while you're, you know, trying to medicate yourself or whatever. It was so great to be able to chat with Allison Moore. 
um, at HNF and talk about how cannabis can help with neuropathic pain. The Hereditary Neuropathy Foundation has been a huge part of my personal journey, and they are really passionate about providing research and resources for how this patient population can use cannabis. Here's how you can get in touch with Allison and contribute to the HNF. Today's just been wonderful having this chat, and I would love to do this more often, and maybe we can break it into topics so we can get Definitely. into more depth. But as we're wrapping up CMT Awareness Month, um, it's just wonderful how the communities come out to champion CMT Awareness Month, bring a lot more attention to it. The best way to help HNF and our mission to cure these diseases is to not only join our patient registry and participate in our research studies, but we really rely on donations to keep the organization going, as well as to fund our innovative triad program, the Therapeutic Research and Accelerated uh, Discovery. We have multiple research collaborations for various types of CMT, and uh, we'll get there quicker with more money. Um, we're a nimble organization. It's amazing what we've done in such a short period of time. So. I would be super grateful um, for anybody that is willing to join the organization. It's free. Reach out to me. I love talking to patients. My email is allison at hnf-cure.org. My, or the Hereditary Neuropathy Foundation's website is hnf-cure.org. There are areas where you can donate and be very specific if you have a certain type of CMT and you wanna to donate to that and you wanna learn more about our research, please reach out. Um, we're working on 15 different uh, subtypes of CMT now. And then again, talking about the patient registry and the CMT medical journal, that will have an impact for almost every single person out there was for CMT. So that is something, if you're not sure what you wanna to donate to, and you know, you're later in life and you know, you're more concerned about how it's gonna impact you today, that's a wonderful uh, way to support us. So thank you so much, yeah, Andy. Let's Andy. do this soon. If you want to hear the entire uncut interview, you can find it on our YouTube page, Smoke and All Sessions. So now you'll hear another quick bit from me about Smoke and All before we get back to the science. Smoke and All is a unique cannabis extract that feels more like smoking compared to traditional edibles. That's because it's actually extracted from cannabis smoke. Smokinol can be incorporated into a variety of formulations, including edibles, tinctures, and capsules. And Smokinol extraction is fast, easy, and requires very little upfront investment. If you work at a dispensary or are involved in cannabis processing and are interested in incorporating Smokinol formulations for your products, contact the link below or send us a message on Instagram. Smokinol, we smoked it for you. Hey there, we're jumping right back into the deep end here with how cannabis reduces pain signaling. These signals in the body are actually electrical, and the endocannabinoid system operates in the opposite direction of all of the other electrical signals in the body. So let's spark this session up. Now let's talk about a little bit more about the electrical signal, right? So when they get activated, that causes this electrical signal to fire, similar to like a light switch. And we're talking about serotonin, dopamine, GABA, glycine, and all of the classic neurotransmitters, all of these, I guess, um, traditional signaling molecules, they all go in the same direction. They all fire one way. 
And the number one purpose of the endocannabinoid system in the whole body is to break that circuit and regulate and regulate those systems by um, altering how they're how they're functioning because they're all going in one direction, which means that it's more difficult for them to regulate themselves. If you imagine a one way street, it's difficult when you're trying to get somewhere on a one way street and there's no place to turn around. You have to go a very long, out of the way you know, route to, to reach the top versus the endocannabinoid system is the only system that functions in the opposite direction and it can get there much faster. This unique ability of the endocannabinoid system to work in the opposite direction of the other neurotransmitters in our brain is called retrograde signaling. Retro comes from the Latin word meaning backwards. To Absolutely. So it's it's a way to turn off other systems, which is so incredibly important when we're talking about overactive systems. So um, I don't know if this is a good example because everyone loves cheese, but say you're at the Olive Garden and they're like putting the cheese on your salad and they say, all right, let us know when to stop. And if that cheese, a little bit of cheese is good, right? But if they just never stop, you're going to have a whole mound of cheese on your salad. The endocannabinoid system is the one that says, hey, stop, that's enough cheese. Thank you. It actually can stop things from being sent to other neurons. Uh, I love that. I'm lactose intolerant, but I still <laughs> love that because I'm just envisioning like I could always use more cheese. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, I, that's why it's like, is that a bad example? Because <laughs> No, but, I you think know, it's a great one. I think everyone has to say no to cheese at some point in their life. And in the brain, there's a very delicate balance of cheese that will lead to pain. So speaking about pain, uh, that is the problem with pain signaling. With either acute pain or chronic pain, what you're trying to do is reduce the cheese, right? You're trying Absolutely. To, you're trying to reduce the cheese back to like a normal salad level. Right, an enjoyable amount of cheese for your salad so you can still enjoy everything else. It's all and, about balance. Exactly. And our brain, uh, our brain can manage a certain amount of pain signaling where it will be what is below threshold and we won't feel pain anymore. So that's the way that the endocannabinoid system works. It works by reducing that pain signaling. I'm trying to get into like a little more detail here without introducing more terms, but well, let's just go with THC. So THC turns on the CB1 receptor and when THC turns CB1, on... CB1, sorry, CB1 is your cannabinoid 1 receptor. Great. <laughs> but the CB1 receptor is responsible for most of the effects of, of cannabis, although it's way more complicated than that. That's how we're going to get into it right now. The CB1 receptor is activated by THC, and the purpose of the CB1 receptor in the brain is to break the circuitry and decrease the ability for that signal to be sent. So that's one of the main ways that the endocannabinoid system and that cannabis can reduce the amount of pain is because it it actually interrupts the signaling for pain and makes and decreases the amount of pain signaling that eventually reach your brain to be felt below a threshold, which means that you don't feel it anymore. Absolutely. And um, I think it's also important to note that Yes, THC absolutely binds your cannabinoid 1 receptor um, on those neurons, but your body also makes molecules that can bind to the same receptor. Um, so we don't actually always need cannabis to have this, this process of regulation happen. Your body's regulating on its own. That's the 
That is the purpose of the endocannabinoids that your body makes. Endo means endogenous. It means it's made inside your body. So we have endocannabinoids. When, when we have overactive neurons, your endocannabinoids are released and sent to say, hey, yo, stop making those neurotransmitters. We have way too many right now. And that is the regulation step that your body normally makes. THC can supplement this because it binds to that same receptor that the molecules that your body makes also bind to. It kind of mimics them and tricks, yeah. it kind of tricks your body into thinking that you have more endocannabinoids. That's sort of the basis for, for most of how how THC and how cannabis works, um, at least through the receptors, is by mimicking the endocannabinoids like anandamide or 2-AG are the two primary molecules that every single one of us is making right now that um, that does this. And and it's incredibly important, but everyone has different levels of, of that in, in our body. And I think the next thing that we're going to talk about is the two different places which the endocannabinoid system can have this action and regulate it. The first one is in inflammation. There's a separate mechanism for inflammation and inflammatory pain as opposed to uh, neuropathic pain because inflammatory pain is what the term we were saying earlier is sensory or nociceptive. It's a response to a chemical signal. It's just that in models of inflammation, like if you have inflammation in your body, that chemical is actually getting produced by your immune system and your own immune cells. Yeah, so they're they're releasing these inflammatory molecules uh, that are going to cause inflammation in your body. So that can also become dysregulated as well, where you have too much inflammation. And I think that's one of the huge benefits of cannabis is that it works on this system that has multiple inputs into pain. Pain itself is really diverse and variable tons of different mechanisms for pain and the endocannabinoid system is involved in all of them which is why it's such a great option um it does not it also is why it doesn't work for absolutely everyone but it's why it works for such a large number of disorders that have to do with pain yeah and if you think of um around your neurons too there's other cells called glial cells and um if you have too many of these pain molecules being produced um, that can actually activate these glial cells to produce too many inflammatory markers. And so not only can your endocannabinoids prevent the amount of pain signals going neuron to neuron, but can also prevent the glial cells from producing too many inflammatory mo molecules. So it can kind of work in two different ways, but all in the same area, which is really interesting. And it's also, <laughs> I think it's also so interesting that on the higher level, the endocannabinoid system regulates the immune system in general, and that inflammation and pain are, an incre they're incredibly closely tied to the immune system because inflammation is a part, it's a response of our immune system, one of the oldest pieces of our immune system. And it's so central, which is why I think it's so able to to decrease it um well and it's kind of interesting so similar to like how some am amounts of p 
pain are beneficial to us, some amounts of inflammation are also beneficial to us. Um, it, it rids a lot of harmful things from our body. It can, it can do amazing things in our body. But if we have chronic inflammation, if we have too much inflammation in our body, it can be extremely debilitating. It can be harmful to our body. So it's all about how it's regulated and what kind of uh, feedback mechanisms we have to stop inflammation or slow down inflammation um, or anything else uh, related to controlling it. And I think this is this is an interesting theory that one of my original mentors, like one of my first mentors working in the lab, one of the first things I looked at was inflammation. And Dr. Bruce Hammock was, was this mentor, and he had this theory about how inflammation was a threshold-based response, which means that it's after a certain point with inflammation, you just get this hockey stick graph where it's it's inflammation will shoot up exponentially, that there is a threshold of inflammation that the human body is able to manage very well. And that reducing our levels of inflammation below that threshold is what can help us to improve our quality of life by reducing symptoms. And that for a lot of us that have chronic inflammation or issues with inflammatory disorders, um, which don't always look like a swollen lip or like a sprained ankle or like like rheumatoid arthritis is an example of inflammation where the joints are clearly very inflamed. Sometimes it could be like like tendonitis is caused by inflammation, even though your joints actually don't appear to be inflamed. There are other... Endometriosis. We'll talk about that later, but endometriosis is incredibly inflammatory. It can be incredibly painful. Yep. And it's inside. It's within GI, GI issues um, like IBS and Crohn's are linked to inflammation of your GI tract. These... It's the inflammation isn't always swelling. At our level, inflammation is the release of a very specific set of molecules, um, usually described as either cytokines, some prostaglandins. There's a large number of different types of molecules that our body creates that are what is called inflammatory factors. And when you get above a certain threshold of these, that's when you start to cause all sorts of negative effects in the body. And that most of us are living our lives very close to this this inflammatory threshold. And I think, um, you know, inflammation is happening all over our body at all times. Um, but maybe, as you said, below a threshold that we even know it's happening. Um, if we have any sort of like foreign substance in our body, that's part of the inflammatory response. But again, chronic inflammation is where uh, an issue arises. And in the case of what Miyabi was saying, we we don't know what other people are experiencing for an inflammatory condition. It can always be hidden. Um, so it's something that a lot of people suffer with, but we just don't visually see it. I think your point about pain and inflammation being beneficial to a certain extent is so important because that's how cannabis helps. It helps decrease the levels of pain and inflammation to a point where they're not out of control because pain and inflammation by themselves are not negative things like per se. They're they're really important functions in the body, and we don't want them to completely not work, um, which I think is it's an interesting and negative side effect that can come with, with pain medication that's actually much stronger um, when you can't feel anything and then you're re-injuring yourself because you can't feel any pain. And I think that's something that's beneficial for for cannabis. So we've covered a lot of ground so far on how cannabis can activate the endocannabinoid system to reduce pain signaling. 
But the endocannabinoid system also contributes to pain in a different way, in terms of the levels of endocannabinoids that are in our bodies. Some of us have less of these than others, and it's something called clinical endocannabinoid deficiency, which we're going to talk about next. All right, so let's talk about this theory developed by Dr. Ethan Russo that is termed uh, clinical endocannabinoid deficiency because uh, it's really interesting and it can be tied to many different diseases. And I'm pretty sure I have it. <laughs> Which is incredibly relevant to this pretty, podcast. <laughs> pretty sure that the end of my PhD, or not even the end, but about three quarters through my PhD, I was like, oh, yeah, this is... This is potentially the cause of most of my issues because CED or clinical endocannabinoid deficiency, it's a theory that some of us, and, and also I, I always say this when we talk about Dr. Ethan Russo's theory is that CED is a theory, but also like gravity and evolution are still theories. And there's a lot of data to, to support them. And there's a lot of information to support endocannabinoid deficiency, at least in specific populations. So the current theory is that some of us have lower levels of endocannabinoids and that this causes problems and that the problems can manifest themselves in either like chronic pain, mental health, or GI issues. Um, by having lower levels of endocannabinoids, you're you're sensitized to these other types. And pain, I think pain is a central role. So just back to what we've been talking about, if these endocannabinoids, the ones your body makes, if they're turning off valves and they're and they're causing things to be kind of maintained at a comfortable level, if you don't have enough of these molecules in your body, you're going to have trouble regulating a lot of mechanisms within your body that are incredibly important. So if you have what is supposed to be like a garden hose watering your plants, and that that's something that our body can handle, and, and if you have a a typical or an average level of endocannabinoids, your endocannabinoids are responsible for turning that spigot down and maintaining the garden hose at a, at a level that it's watering your plants. If you have clinical endocannabinoid deficiency and you don't have enough of those endocannabinoids, all of a sudden that garden hose can get out of control and be like a fire hose that's just bulldozing your right. garden. All your plants are getting flooded and they're going to die. It's not good for your garden. Although some water is necessary for your garden, you don't want to put a swimming pool's worth of water all over your garden, right? Exactly. And this is how this works in, in pain. And actually, the best evidence for clinical endocannabinoid deficiency is in disorders that have a lot of pain. It's in IBS or irritable bowel syndrome, migraines, and fibromyalgia. And all three of those ha are associated with severe types of pain. Yeah, absolutely. So these, these lower levels of circulating endocannabinoids can cause an increase in your cannabinoid 1 receptors. So you can think of this issue if you have more of the receptors that are supposed to be like accepting that signal from the endocannabinoids, if you have more of those receptors but less of the signal, this causes a huge disparity in, in, your, in how you regulate things. And it's so difficult. It's like a chicken or an egg situation with the symptoms because in terms of the pain symptoms and the, the, all the symptoms that kind of like overlap with one another, uh, there's, there's these things, our body responds and our body is always fluidly changing and responding to things that are happening. And 
because you have lower endocannabinoids, you could have more CB1 receptors, which has been shown for people who are diagnosed with PTSD and is another, uh, you know, another list of symptoms and categories of um, diagnoses, a mental health disorder that is associated with having lower endocannabinoid tone. And it really, for me, I think like a lot of the a lot of the things that the endocannabinoid system controls, many of them, the reason why clinical endocannabinoid deficiency can be different in so many different people is because we are all so different in our endocannabinoid systems that for some people having clinical endocannabinoid deficiency, it, it's also unclear what causes clinical endocannabinoid deficiency. So it could be different uh, yeah, causes. I was just, just going to say that. Is it a genetic regulation? Like, are your are your genes just not getting transcribed uh, fast enough? Or could it be where you just were born with, like, less uh, potential to produce these molecules? And then there's experience because PTSD is linked to trauma. Absolutely. Is, is, is there some sort of epigenetic change or some sort of environmental change um, high levels of stress and high levels of cortisol, like all of these things will alter endocannabinoid production. And every person's body responds to that a little bit, uh, you know, slightly differently. Absolutely. And I just want to reiterate that even though uh, clinical endocannabinoid uh, deficiency is a theory, we have so much evidence for so many different uh, disease states that there are less endocannabinoids um, circulating. One more thing about clinical endocannabinoid deficiency is that there are two ways in which cannabis helps rebalance clinical endocannabinoid deficiency. The first way is by just mimicking the endocannabinoids. So I said earlier that we're we're tricking the body into thinking that we have more endocannabinoids. That's the first way. Because I, they bind to the same receptor, right? So they're both activating that cannabinoid one receptor. And that's why THC can, can kind of mimic the ones that our body makes. Exactly. So from the perspective of our body, it, it looks, it just looks and feels like we have more of the endocannabinoids. That's the first way. The second way is by developing tolerance. Tolerance, which usually is described as needing a larger dose of cannabis for the same effect, is developed by reducing CB1 receptor densities. You experience tolerance because you reduce the number of CB1 receptors that are available. And in clinical endocannabinoid deficiency, it's been shown that you can have an upregulation in CB1 receptors, in which case having a certain level of tolerance would mean that you're lowering those CB1 receptors and that you actually are rebalancing it. This is all just, that part is all theoretical. But it makes a ton of sense. I mean, absolutely. And, and we'll continue to talk about tolerance in many other episodes because it's just going to be a reoccurring theme. Especially for chronic pain and for people who use for chronic pain, like your pain isn't going anywhere. And tolerance can be really, it could be problematic. And in addition to that, tolerance breaks can be, po can be problematic. So we will be discussing that. Actually, that's something we'll touch on a little bit at the end when we're talking about methods. All right. So that is it, fam. Thank you so much for listening. And for anyone who's not already following Smoke and All on Instagram, please make sure you do that, especially if you have suggestions for episodes or want to ask us any questions. Reminder, if you are a processor at a dispensary or work at a dispensary and you want to use the Smoke and All extraction process, we would love to help you get that on your shelves so more consumers have availability to it. 
please contact us through Instagram or through our website. Also, we were not able to get everything about pain into one episode, so listen along because next time we will talk about some specific diseases that involve chronic pain and some administration methods to use cannabis for that pain. Thanks again.